Today's scripture reading comes from various portions of Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 31. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of God. For the last, uh, for the last month, we've been looking at uh, a new series, a series of passages, because we know that we've been growing up with passages all our lives, especially if you've grown up in a church, you've heard similar, familiar passages, and we wanted to revisit these passages because we want to learn what they're really about. What do they mean now that we're older? What is at the center of any of these passages. And a few weeks ago, we began looking at the life of Moses. And we know that Moses was sent by God, and he goes to the Pharaoh in Egypt, the king of Egypt. And God tells Moses to say, let my people go so that they may worship me. And Pharaoh, he's the most powerful person in the world to date. And he asks Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so we saw last week the plagues. That was last week. Now this week, God is 
we're looking at the crossing of the Red Sea, God rescues the Israelites across the Red Sea. And that's going to teach us a paradigm. It's going to give us a paradigm for salvation. What is salvation? God is rescuing us from the things that are enslaving us, from the things that are controlling us. It's what we call, what the Bible defines as our idols. There are three things we're going to learn about salvation as we see the Israelites crossing the Red Sea and escaping from Egypt. What are we escaping from? What does it take? And how does it happen? What are we escaping from? What does it take? How? First, <clears throat> what are we escaping from? We're going to learn some background here. Uh, Pharaoh, he's the king of Egypt. And he allows the Hebrews, he allows these slaves to go free. And so the Hebrews, they leave the Nile Valley many, many while, miles back, heading back to their ancient homeland in Canaan. And they arrived at their first physical barrier. It's the Red Sea. Now back in the Nile Valley, you have a pharaoh. He has a change of heart. In chapter 14, he says, what have we done? And so what he does is he calls 600 chariots. The chariots, it's amazing, 600 of them. It shows the might of Egypt because the chariots were the greatest military weapon of their time. It's the most terrible instrument of death that the human race had conceived up until that point. And you see these chariots, they're racing towards the Israelites. And so the Israelites are trapped, essentially. On one side, they have the most powerful military force heading towards them. But on the other side, there's a physical barrier, a powerful physical barrier, the Red Sea. So how do they respond? Naturally, verses 11 to 12, they're completely out of touch. They're completely out of touch with reality. They're delusional. They're fearful. They're delusional about their past. In verse 12, they say to Moses, didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. In other words, what they're saying is, we were fine. We were fine until you showed up. Now, of course, that's not what really happened. That's not what they really said. Because in chapter 4, when Moses and Aaron uh, when they brought these Israelites together, the text says they believed and they bowed and they worshipped. That's what really happened. Now, in the face of fear, trapped on all sides, they become delusional about what they really thought. They distort their story. They become delusional about their story. They say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die. Now, if you're reasonable you would have said this. You would have said, we witnessed, we just witnessed 10 plagues. God had sent 10 plagues into Egypt. And the 10th plague, that was lights out. That's the power of God. That's the love of God. God single-handedly took down the most powerful empire in the history of the world to date. If anything, what they would have said was, we need one more plague. But they're not asking for God. They're not expecting God. They're not hoping for God. They're running away from God, in essence. They're not even acknowledging God. They're certainly not thankful for God. What's the point of this? Modern people, they love the concept of freedom. We live in a society where it's all about self-discovery and freedom. Freedom to define yourselves. Freedom to identify yourselves. Freedom to find yourself and express yourself. But we define freedom like this. Freedom in our modern societal definition is not having any Lord, 
not having any God, not having any restriction that's going to impede choice, free choice. Freedom is therefore about self-discovery. It's about taking initiative. It's about the pursuit of our desires without any imposition, without any constraint. Now, what the writer of Exodus is showing us is that this notion of freedom is not only impossible, it's actually undesirable. You wouldn't want that. At this moment in this passage, the Hebrew nation, they're actually free. By societal modern definitions, they are free. Think about this. First, they've left Egypt. They left their land of slavery. So there's no more chains. They're free. Second, they haven't at that point arrived at Mount Sinai where God gives them the law. And so they are by definition completely lawless in a sense and not slaves in the other sense. They are free. There are no oaths that they've taken to enter into service of God. So by definition, they're free. But look at this. They're slaves. They're still in slavery. Why? Because they're paralyzed by fear. They're paralyzed by their anxieties. Almost to the point where they're delusional and unreasonable in their thinking process. Look at what they see. Look at what they're hearing, the rumbling. Look at what they hear. They are driven by what is apparent. They are driven by their circumstances. They are slaves to what their senses are telling them instead of what they actually know is true. Now, when they were slaves in Egypt, they said, yes, we believe God. We believe that God sent Moses to save us. Why? Because slavery is hard. It's hard labor. It's, uh, their lives are absolutely meaningless. If you're a slave, your lives are meaningless. You're insignificant on one hand, and you face danger and death every day on the other hand. And so now they're free. But they sense a new danger. The moment they sense a new danger, they say, I'd rather be a slave. They're slaves to a circumstance. They're slaves to what is apparent, their senses. Moses is very different. If you look at verse 13 and 14, Moses says what? Stand firm. Don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you today. There's no slavery in Moses. Moses has bound himself to God. He has bound himself to the Lord. He has a Lord. He has a king. He has a God. And yet, no fear, no paralysis, no delusion, absolutely courageous. There is poise. He has self-control. He's in control. Why? Because remember, earlier on in this book, we preached about this, Moses encountered God in fire. Moses met God. He encountered God as fire. He's seen the fire of God, and so he knows. He's encountered God. He knows his life is not his own. He's heard the promise of God. He's experienced the grace of God. He hears the call of God. That's what he's captivated by. You see, the modern idea of freedom is having no Lord or no God, that you belong to yourself. But that's impossible. That modern notion is impossible. You're always slave to something. If it's not God, it's going to be something else. You're always a slave to something, but you're never your own. Either you're serving the Lord as the absolute Lord of your life, or you are in slavery to something else. And so you're slaves to your anxieties and your fears and your depressions, your neuroses, your jealousy. True freedom is not having no master at all. True freedom is having the right master. 
You're not free until you see God. You're not free until you encounter God. You're not free until you recognize the beauty of God and the power of God wrapped up in the love of God and you're captivated by that beauty and that power and that love. It's got to be more important than anything else in your life. Until then, you are not really free. You may have incredible gifting. You may have incredible talent. You may have incredible physical outward beauty in your life. You may live wealthy, as Bob Dylan says. If you read the, in, the, in the reflection quotes, you may have all those things, but you have to serve somebody. And so you will either be slaves to your fear and your insecurities, and that's why you have to be great, and that's why you have to be good, and that's why you have to achieve, and that's why you have to accomplish, because if that's what you are pinning your hopes to, that's your semblance of freedom. You are still a slave. You see that? The whole book of Exodus, it's about this. And the heart of the book is really right here. It's literally the heart of the book. We're right in the midpoint of this book. It's a radically different understanding of freedom than the modern view, than the modern societal view. Because what the Bible is saying is unless God is the absolute Lord of your life, king over your life, you're absolutely a slave to something else. And the reason is because, and I'm going I'm to lay out a few reasons. One, you have to live for something. There's, some, there's always something you look to that gives you meaning, that gives you worth in life. Ever since the Garden of Eden, way back in the first book of the Bible, there's a deep insecurity in the soul that says you are nobody. You are, insecu- you are insignificant. You are, you're driven out. You're cast out. You don't belong. And it's because our source of worth, our source of significance, our source of security, we've, we departed, we rejected in the Garden of Eden. And so that deep insecurity in the heart that says you're nobody, you don't belong, it starts with that. Second, whatever you live for actually controls you. That which brings you significance, the, the heart says you're insignificant, you're nobody. So the things that bring you significance in your life, you have to have those things. You have to accomplish those things. So you have to control that relationship that you're in. You have to manipulate that relationship. We say, you know, I'm the one that's fighting for us. You have to do that. Why? Because it gives, it gives you meaning. It controls you. You need it. Now, we hate, in our modern society, we hate to hear things like that. We hate to hear that we are controlled by things. But think about this. You are controlled by these things. You may not know it, but you are. How do you know? Because when you're threatened, when that thing that you so desperately want to keep, when it's threatened, you become defensive. When it's blocked from you, you become angry and you fight. And when you lose it, you fall into despair and despondency. That's the reason why. Now, the third reason is because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're bad or good. And it doesn't matter if it's a bad thing or a good thing. If you ever watched the show, the entire series Mad Men, a few years ago, uh, one of the most popular shows on TV, Mad Men, why doesn't Betty Draper leave her husband, Don Draper? Why doesn't she just leave him? Who regularly cheats on her? Alcoholic, workaholic. It's because we're living in the 50s and the 60s. You don't leave your husband. Without him, you're nothing. And so she stays with him, even though he's constantly cheating on her, even though he's a liar and an alcoholic and a workaholic. Here's a, another example, a more uh, real-to-life example for us. There are lots of people in the church here we're serving. A lot of people here are serving. And so you're in meetings, and you're constantly meeting up with people. You're plugged in. You're involved. And you're giving. Why? A lot of us do those things because 
we feel because you feel called to, to these meetings? Do you feel because you feel called to leadership? Because you feel called to the church? No. That's not the reason why a lot of us do this. It's because you go because you have a role. You belong. And so you only look to be friends with certain people, not everybody in the church, but certain people, people who make you feel like you belong. And uh, uh, you're critical of everything. You're critical of everything. Uh, You don't go because you have a role. You go because that's where you draw your sense of worth. That's where you draw your sense of meaning. You see, in the first case, the case of Mad Men, Betty Draper, it's a demeaning relationship. But because a person finds significance in that relationship, a lot of us, we've been in relationships far longer than we should uh, because we're a slave. We're slaves. We'd rather be humiliated because we hate the thought of being alone. But in the second example, that person that's in the church and and that person's reasons for serving, the reason why they come is because they're coming to church for what that does to their sense of guilt or their sense of worth. Do you see that? So whatever you're tied to, that thing controls you. And that's why we're so angry when things don't go our way. And that's why we're so neurotic in our society today. We're constantly trying to control every little detail so that we can uphold. We have left to ourselves to maintain our sense of worth. The Bible says that anything but God in the center of our lives leads to slavery and we're controlled. We're still slaves. And so when you have something really good in your life, how do you keep from being a slave to it without being paralyzed by fear when you lose it? If it's a person, think about this. We place such a burden on our children that we stop letting them be children. And so we're ruining our children. And we're ruining our relationships with our children. Lastly, if you ever fail to get these things, if you ever lose these things, or if these things ever disappoint you, they're going to damage you and they're going to destroy you. So if you build your life around being a good parent and something goes wrong with your children, if you build your life around just being great or excellent at your career and something goes wrong uh, with your work, if you build your life around uh, a good reputation and something goes wrong to alter or shape or change your reputation, in other words, you may not think you're a slave to whatever you built your life around until something goes wrong. Then you see how hooked you are. Then you see how damaged you are. It's not your children or your life that's bad. It's what you've made of them in your heart, and that's what oppresses you. And if you fail it or it fails you, it curses you. There's self-loathing and there's anger deep inside. It damages you and it ruins you. What do you need to be saved from? It's these idols in our hearts that are enslaving us and controlling us. Now, secondly, what does it take then to be saved? An answer is this. In this passage, God saves through a decisive act. The first thing we learn here is that when the Pharaoh sets out with his chariots, what he's basically done is he has condemned the Israelites to death. Those chariots are designed to just run right over you. 
That's what it's designed to do. As long as the Hebrews are on the Egyptian side of the border, the Egyptian side of the sea, they are under a death sentence. They are under condemnation. And what's interesting is, if you, we didn't uh, read it uh, publicly, but here in verses 19 to 25, the Israelites, they cross over this dry seabed. They cross over. And as soon as the Egyptians tried to pass through, they found an invisible warrior fighting against them, refusing to let them pass. That's what's going on. And the text says, neither side went near the other, neither the Egyptians nor the Israelites. What does that mean? As soon as the Israelites, they crossed that line, as soon as they crossed over, they came out from their condemnation. They came out from their sentence of death. There's no more condemnation for them. They've literally crossed over. That sentence no longer has any power over them. Whoever's left on the Egyptian side after the waters came back, it says the waters came back to their place and the Egyptians were swept up. That's what happened to our condemnation. For the Israelites, that's what happened. So whoever's left, the remnants on the other side, they're saying, you better get back here. How? That chasm is so wide, it no longer has any relevance in their lives. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He is crossed over from death to life. It's very different than any other religion. Very, very different. In every other religion, you can get converted. Every other religion. You just have to begin this long process of obedience. It's a very long process of deeds. Jesus says no. All your life, you may be under condemnation. You will be liable for everything you've ever done. All your failures, all the things that are killing you, the damage that you've done to other people. But there can be a moment where you just cross over. And now, there's no more condemnation. You are no longer held liable at all. The reason why we don't come to the gospel in faith is not because... It's not real. It's actually because it's too good to be true. It's hard to believe. You've crossed over from death to life. Religion is this. Hopefully, if I live a good life, I'm going to try my best to pray. I'm going to try my best to read the Bible. I'm going to try my best to raise my kids in a Christian way. I'm going to try my best to attend church. Then maybe God will accept me. Jesus says, no. God saves through a decisive act. The gospel teaches that you can have a good verdict that you've been looking for all your life. Today, you just cross over. God delights in you. He accepts you. He receives you now. Christianity is a decisive act by God to change your status from dead to living. That's what Christianity is. Primarily, becoming a Christian does not mean a change in character. We oftentimes muddy the waters because we start to think that Christianity means that we have to change our character, primarily. Now, of course, as a Christian, you're going to become more like Jesus. Of course, as a Christian, you're going to want to read the Bible. You're going to go to church. You're going to serve. You're going to plug into the life of the church, of course. But primarily it's not defined by a change in character 
It's not primarily defined by change in behavior. What makes you a Christian is not a change in character. It's a change in position. It's a change in status. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is that you've crossed over. That's what that means. There's no more condemnation. Becoming a Christian, it means there's a decisive moment in your life where you've passed from death to life. You were one time under a death sentence, and now you've been freed. A decisive act. The narrative, this narrative that we're reading, it shows that it's happening visibly, existentially. God doesn't say, you know, after they, they cross over, they go to Mount Sinai, God gives them the law. He doesn't say to them at Mount Sinai, here's my law. Here are the Ten Commandments. Now you better obey, and if you do, then I will rescue you. That's not what he says. What he does is he leads them across the Red Sea. He leads them from slavery into freedom, from death to life, from Egypt to the promise. And then he gives them the law. You see, he saves you, and then he gives you the law. And the reason, we need rescue. Obedience is not the prerequisite for salvation. This passage, we said, it gives you a real paradigm for what salvation is. It is, the prerequisite is not obedience. Most people, or all people, who cross over from death to life have bad character. And even if you've grown up in the church and you cross over from death to life, you recognize that my good works, I can't obey. That's why we need rescue. That's why we need to cross over. I can't obey on my own. Somebody inevitably will ask, but you have to trust, right? I mean, you have to muster up something inside, right? There's faith, right? You have to muster that up, right? (laughs) That depends what you mean. Look, it says they walked, these people walked literally between canyons with walls of water in order to get across. That's what it says. So it must have been that some people, as they were walking across, they're like, wow, this is amazing. As they're walking, they just see walls of water to their right and left, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. And so they live in wonder every moment. There inevitably were people who were much more skeptical, and as they're walking across, they were like, these walls are going to come crashing down at any moment in time, and I'm going to die. I'm going to get swept up. I'm going to drown. The, the water, the force, the walls, and they're calculating, and they're, you know, they're, they're doing the math, and they're trying to measure the force and the impact and what's going to happen to them, and they're saying this could happen at any point. Help me, help me, and they're just kind of running across. Who of those two are more equally saved? Who's more equally saved between those two types of people? Some of them have very strong faith, a lot of faith. Some of them have very weak faith, very little faith. Who was more saved that day? Because they all ended up on the other side. And when those waters receded and came back to their place, who was more saved? Did they sit there and point to each other and say, I was more saved than you? Is that what they say? Because it doesn't depend on the quality of your faith. Salvation doesn't depend on the quality of your faith, on the magnitude of your faith, but the object and the direction of your faith. That's what it depends on. They must have believed enough to set foot and to walk. They must have seen and they must have believed. 
They must have seen God fighting for them, and so they believed. They must have seen the walls of water, and so they must have believed. And they crossed over from death to life. To become a Christian is not so much a change in character. We all have bad character. We all have bad character. And the thing is, that character is going to refine, of course. It's going to happen organically in some ways. It's going to happen inorganically in some ways. Through hardship, just brute force, sometimes, just, and you refine. God uses all these things. Some of us, it's going to happen through reading the Word, attending church, growing in faith and community, and you learn to trust more and more. Other people were forced to trust. We're put in situations where it's just enslaving, and you realize, I need rescue, and through that, you see the grace of God in your life, and you come to faith, greater faith. But the thing is, it never depended on even how well you believed. It never depended on how, even how well you trusted. It's a decisive act on what God has done in your life that enabled you to cross over. Becoming a Christian is a change in status that can happen in any moment in time. And so the primary difference between Christianity and other religions, Buddhism, Islam, Confucianism, Judaism, every one of those faiths, they have a journey. They all have a journey. But all those other journeys depend on you. Do you see that? The eightfold path, the five pillars of faith, the Tao, Taoism. You know what the Tao means? It means way, the way, the law. That means that in order for a change in status, you first have to demonstrate a change in your life and behavior. Christianity says the exact opposite. The gospel teaches you can't change your life. You can't change your behavior because the sin is inside. It's not about what's happening to you on the outside. It's what's inside. And that's why even if you are free, you're riddled with anxiety and depression and delusion. That's what happens to these Israelites. It's inside. It's sin is much more nuanced. Sin is much more complex than beating it through a series of, of obedience laws, moral laws. The Bible says that a sinner is dead. That's what the Bible says. That's pretty decisive. It's going to take a decisive act to bring that person to life. You're trapped. But the Bible says, this text at least says, you are trapped between a raging army bent to destroy you and seawater that's bent to drown you. You cannot cross. Martin Luther, the great theologian, he said, it's like a caterpillar in a ring of fire. What's a caterpillar going to do in a ring of fire? You are helpless, you are lost, you are trapped, you are cooked unless somebody comes out from high and rescues you. A decisive act dependent on what is above. You see that? Salvation comes through a decisive, irreplaceable act, a change in status, a change in position, crossing over from death to life. No condemnation. The Egyptians, they were covered with the waters of judgment, completely swept, completely drowned. In the Bible, the floodwaters, they were a symbol of what? They were a symbol of judgment. They were a symbol of the wrath and the justice of God, like Noah's flood. After the Israelites, after they crossed over, 
the Egyptians, they, they tried to go right through. What happens? Verses 26 to 28, they were swept up by the water. They were covered. So one group drowns in the judgment. Another group makes it across without even getting what? But look at them. Were they so good? Were they so great? Where in this text do you see them showing up strong in their faith? Right? All of them were fearful, ungrateful. They weren't even looking for God. They weren't even acknowledging God in their trouble because they were self-absorbed and self-centered. They were foolish. They were delusional. They were stupid. What's sin? Sin is self-absorption. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is being a fool. Sin is thinking delusionally and stupidly because of these things. They definitely were not great people. How did God save them? So we talked about what do you escape from? You're escaping from your anxiety. You're escaping from your depression. You're escaping from all the idols in our hearts that are enslaving us and controlling us. What does it take to be saved? A decisive act of the power and love and grace of God. How does it happen? How do you escape? That question, that how question, is very important. Because what that means is, what it implies is, that anyone, it's possible for anyone to cross over from death to life. But you've got to notice something interesting about Moses here in verses 11 to 12. You, in 11 to 12, the people are responding very uh, foolishly. They're delusional, they're faithless. But verses 13 to 14, you see Moses, he acts very beautifully, very faithfully. Very courageously. And then you get to verse 15. And the Lord, he's kind of yelling at Moses. And what he says is, why are you crying out to me? And commentators in verse 15, when they look at verse 15, they say that Moses, Moses was rebuked, even though he was very courageous. Moses got yelled at, even though he was very, he was the only one that was faithful. Moses was, was yelled at even though he didn't take part in that foolishness. Moses gets the rebuke that the people deserved as if he was the one that sinned. In other words, we call that, there's a theological term for that, it's called imputation. It's a transfer of guilt. It's a transfer of guilt because it's as if the sin of the people were placed on him. And so Moses acts as their representative, and he receives the rebuke. And what do they get? They get to cross over. That's what they get. Now, some of you may be sitting here looking at this text and saying, well, that seems a little bit like a stretch to me. A pastor seems to be reading into things. And, And it would be, it would be if this is the only place in the Bible where you see this, which is why you have to take any passage, any truth from Scripture, and you have to apply it to the whole of Scripture and make sure it hangs tight. And it just happens to be that when you do that, you see later on, just even in this book alone, Moses explicitly states, you, Israel, you've committed a great sin, but perhaps God will make atonement for this sin. And God does. Moses pleads for them. And you know what he says? He says, forgive their sin. Father, forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out, cast me out. I will take their place. Look at this. The people they went through, the people they crossed over, not because of their faith. They were very weak faith. They were very faithless. They crossed over not because they were good. They weren't good. It's because they had someone who acted as their representative, their mediator. That's who they had. 
And we have an even greater mediator than Moses. Later in the Bible, centuries later actually, you have the prophet Jonah. Jonah is also dealing with water. Famous passage, famous story in Jonah. He's on a ship. And on the ship, there's a storm. It's raging. We said the waters, judgment, the storm, the wrath of God, the rage of God, the justice of God, pounding against his ship. And what does Jonah say? He says, throw me in. And because he gets thrown into the water, the rage, the wrath, the justice, the judgment, everyone on the boat, they're safe. They become saved. Then even later, centuries later, Jesus Christ says, I am the greater Jonah. And what he's saying is, you know that thing that Jonah experienced? He experienced the depths and the distance and the coldness and the judgment. As horrible as that is, look at this passage. The weight of the water, the waves of the judgment crashing down. I will experience the ultimate judgment to which all of these things point. All of these stories and narratives point. I will experience the ultimate waters of judgment the ultimate storm, the ultimate Red Sea, so that you, you can cross over. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, there was actually literally another storm, physically another storm. And so the sky grew dark, and the earth trembled, and Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he's saying in that moment, because in that moment, God had forsaken Jesus, and instead the wrath of God was pouring down on Jesus like a storm, like waves and waves of the wrath of God pouring out on him. And it was crashing down on Jesus, and there was no mediator. There was no mediator. When these people were crossing over the Red Sea, Moses stretched out his arms, and you saw the waves and the waters held back They were just ready to pound, but they were being held back. That's the power of God. That's the love of God. That's what was happening. It was being held back. Why? Centuries later, Jesus Christ on the cross, and the waves of God's wrath are pounding down on Christ, just sweeping over Christ, and it was crushing. There was no mediator. As the people of Israel are crossing over, and they were crossing over to safety, at the end, Miriam, Moses' sister, sings a song. She sings a song of salvation. Here's Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do you know that even he was singing a song? He was actually repeating Psalm 22. You know how Psalm 22 starts? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ on the cross, the waves of God's wrath, punishing him, pounding him, no mediator, and yet he was singing. He was doing it gladly for us, for you. Moses, he merely received a rebuke. Moses was a mediator, one mediator, uh, a typological figure of Christ. He brought people across those waves in the Red Sea, Jesus Christ. He acted as the ultimate mediator. 
And so the waves of God's wrath, the waves of God's judgment pouring out, the judgment waters poured over the Egyptians. They got what they deserved. Jesus Christ, he lived the perfect life as, as God's only son. Holiness and righteousness embodied in Christ. And yet, Moses just received a rebuke. Jesus Christ received the full wrath, the full death sentence of God's judgment so that he could lead us across from death to life. And what he's saying is, if you put your faith in me, right now it's probably weak faith. We have all people, all sorts of people here. You can cross-divide them in many different ways. And God has no bias towards any. And we'd be, we could be coming in very, very weak faith, afraid of what you're going to lose, afraid of what you're giving up. But if you're crossing over because God has led you across because of what Christ has done in faith, you know, a lot of times they don't even use decisive acts like crossing over because even that seems so much like on our will. In Scripture, a lot of times we say, behold the cross. In Numbers chapter 21, you have looked to the bronze snake. Moses raises up a bronze snake because people were dying, and he says, if you look to the snake, you will live. You know why? Because looking doesn't take any work. How many of us looking takes work? It doesn't take any work to behold something that is beautiful, you see? And that's what it's likened to. That's what salvation is. It's all what God has done. And Jesus says, if you put your faith in what I have done and who I am, don't put your faith in who you are and what you're doing. Put your faith in who I am and what I have done. I will lead you out. You will cross over because Jesus Christ received what we deserved, and now there's no condemnation. Our status has changed, and we are truly free, truly free. Every other pursuit, every other desire, every other religion, every other belief, they will control you. Do this. Get this. Try this. You better accomplish this. And then maybe you'll be free. But you're not. And you won't be. You're going to work and you're going to work and you're going to drown in pressure, drown in worry, drown in loss, drown in failure, drown in, in slavery. You're in waves. You need to cross over. Why? Those, those masters, those other masters, they will never rescue you from the one thing that you need to be free. You need victory. You need overcoming. You need rescue. Otherwise, you're still a slave. If you think you can work your way into freedom, what's a slave? A slave is somebody who works until he dies. He's got no meaning, no purpose, no joy. A lot of us live like that, even in the church. Even in the church, we live like that. You need to cross over too. You see that? Jesus says, I'm the only Lord the only master, that if you have me, I will fill your heart completely, and if you fail me, I will forgive your soul completely. You won't die, not eternally, because I died for you. Sometimes it feels like you're going to die because when you give up things that you think you need, as your source of your, you know, to increase your options and potential and freedom and your joy, those things are actually taking away your options, potential, freedom, and joy. You see that? Jesus says, I'm going to put on you my yoke. Take my yoke on you. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is what, what oxen put. You put those things on, on cattle so that you steer them, it's to control them. Jesus says, yeah, if you make me your Lord and your master, there is a yoke. 
right? But every other yoke will crush you under its pressure, and you will never experience your true potential under those. Because there's always going to be this burden to prove yourself, and you can't, not in the end, not ultimately. That's why we're always striving. That's why we're always trying. That's why we're always failing. That's why accomplishments and success is only short-lived. But Jesus says, my yoke is the only one that frees you. He says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. No burden. You know why? Because Jesus Christ took on the only real burden that will truly weigh you down and destroy you. Sin. Plunge yourself into the grace of God, into the power of God, into the love of God, into the justice of God. Throw yourself at his justice and mercy in Christ. That's what it means to cross over. Let's pray.